Okay, guys, we're well, good to go. Thank you very much for this chance to share with you. Um, and there will be dialogue after. Uh, so every time I, you disagree with me, make a note of it, and we'll hash it out at the end of the session. Um, I guess a couple of things I'll say before I really get into, into what I want to say this morning. Um, you know, we've talk, we mentioned this guy, Trainer. And basically the thing that he taught me was you take a passage of scripture and you have a piece of paper and a pen and you sit there and you look at it and you look at it and you look at it and you look at it. Like his homework assignment was two hours of homework for every hour in class and it was on a passage of scripture. And you will be amazed at what comes crawling out of the woodwork if you sit there and just look at it. It is absolutely phenomenal. And, and it, you don't have to be a great Bible scholar or know Greek and Hebrew and all this kind of thing. Just, just sit there and look at it and think. And you say, you know, and you might, you might sit there for 15 minutes and get nothing. That's the, that's the bad part. And then all of a sudden something clicks. Whoa, wow. Yeah, hey, cool. Uh, so that, that, was, that was training. Um, on this regional meeting, regional gathering, um, Probably Andrew will circulate some stuff to you before that actually happens because there's a lot of stuff out on the internet and the bishop is encouraging everybody to see that. And you will have a chance to have input. There's eight topics. You will have a chance to have input on every single one of those because they're going to do it. They're going to have breakout sessions, but they're going to rotate. So you'll, you'll get a chance to go through the before groups. You'll get a chance to go through all of them. And, and Andrew is going to be one of the facilitators. So, um, you know, when you see that, you see that stuff and, and the eight topics, you know, well, and maybe, you know, not all of them are going to interest you, but some of them will. Like, you know, as he mentioned, the 88% the of, of the population is not evangelical. What would Free Methodist churches look like if we could really, really start reaching out to them? You know, are they, are they totally inoculated against the gospel, or is there some way to, to get through to them. Hey, look, you know, there's good stuff here. You should be paying attention to the spiritual side of your life. What, what, would, what would a church look like? Or, uh, yeah, how do, we, how do we get young people, men and women, to get into the ministry? You know, and it's uh, like I, one, of the, one of the ways that I am totally a fossil is that I went to seminary. <laughs> like the... the Ministers just don't do that anymore. Uh, you know, that was three years, and it was, it was three hard years. When I got out of seminary, I made myself a promise I'm never, ever going to be sleep-deprived again. Of course, I have been, but, you know, it was, it was tough. But I did learn a lot of stuff, too. So, okay. Um, if you have Bibles or on your cell phone, you go to uh, Genesis chapter 28. I'm going to read, uh, starting with verse 10. Genesis chapter 28. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he, stepped, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. 
and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. The road went straight up one side of the hill and down the other so that anybody on top of the hill could see up and down it for quite some distance. And the man at the top of the hill was looking very carefully at the road in both directions, but especially to the south from where he had come. The sun was just about ready to go below the horizon, and then the instant darkness of the tropical night would descend. The man couldn't see anybody on the road. He listened very carefully. There was no sound of human presence. He stepped quickly off the road into the scrubby brush that was beside it, went a few yards, found a level spot, cleared away a few stones, took a bigger rock, and put his head on it for a pillow, and lay down to sleep. The man was Jacob, and the place would be called Bethel in the future. Jacob was running from the anger of his twin brother Esau, and Esau had really good reason to be angry. Jacob had been a jerk. Forty years or so before this, when he and Esau were both young men, Esau had come back to camp from a very unsuccessful hunt, and he was very, very hungry. And Jacob was in the process of making a lentil stew. And Esau asked for some of the stew. And Jacob said, I'll trade you a meal of stew for your birthright. Now Esau was the older of the twins, and therefore the rights of the eldest son were his. And the birthright was a very, very important thing. It meant that he, when Isaac, their father, died, Esau would get twice as much of the father's property as Jacob. And because there were only two sons, Esau would get two-thirds and Jacob would get one-third. 
And also, Esau would become the ruler in the family, and Esau would become the spiritual head of the family. The birthright meant wealth and power and status. It was worth a whole lot more than one meal of lentil stew. Jacob's offer was totally outrageous, but it shows us that Jacob had been thinking about the birthright and how he might get it. How else do we explain that it was the first thing in his mind when he discovers that Esau is vulnerable because he is so hungry? And Esau accepted the offer. He made Jacob a solemn promise that the birthright would be his. He ate as much lentil stew and bread as he could hold, and he went his way. Jacob is a very self-centered person. He's very devoted to his own interests. There's no mercy, there's no compassion, there's no brotherly love about Jacob. After all, why not feed Esau? Just feed him. But no, Jacob has to exploit every single chance he gets to promote his self-interest. And he held Esau to that promise through the years, even though Esau begged and begged and begged to be able to get out of it. Many years pass, 40 years, 50 years, Isaac gets old and he gets blind. And he calls in Esau and says, you go and hunt wild game and make me wild meat that I like and I will give you my blessing." Well, Isaac's wife, the twin's mother, Rebecca, heard this, and she invited Jacob to be a partner with her in a scheme where he would be the chief beneficiary. That they would gain for Jacob by deceiving Isaac because of his blindness. And so Rebecca prepared meat such as Isaac liked. She put skin on Jacob's neck and the backs of his hands because Esau was incredibly hairy and Jacob was incredibly smooth. And she clothed Jacob in Esau's clothing. And it worked. Jacob went into Esau and he got the blessing that Isaac had, in Jacob went into Isaac and he got the blessing that Isaac had intended for Esau. Again, Jacob is totally devoted to self-interest. He's totally self-centered. He thinks only of himself. And he's quite willing to lie because he, and he brought God into it because he said, yeah, well, God helped me to catch this good meat so quick. Jacob really doesn't care about relationships. Like he doesn't care what his father Isaac is going to feel when he discovers that his son Jacob deceived him so grossly. He doesn't care what Esau is going to feel at this second major loss of something that was rightfully his. Well, of course, the deception was very quickly found out, and Esau was very, very angry, and he thought of a solution. I will wait till Isaac dies, 
and then I will kill Jacob. That should take care of him having the birthright and him having the blessing. But Isaac spoke his thoughts and Rebekah heard them and she decided that it would be a good idea if Jacob went to spend some time with her brother who was 500 miles away. And she persuaded Isaac to send Jacob by telling him that really Jacob ought to marry a wife from the family clan, not from the local girls of Canaan. Now Esau had married a couple of local girls and Rebekah just absolutely hated them. That's the background for Jacob being at Bethel. But there's one other fact that was probably floating around in Jacob's mind. Esau is a cunning hunter. What better opportunity to get rid of his troublesome brother Jacob than on this trip? The relatives who are 500 miles away don't know that Jacob is coming. Father Isaac doesn't expect to see son Jacob anytime soon at all. So if Esau can track him down and kill him and dump the body in some deserted spot, who is going to be the wiser? Now this is Jacob's thinking. So Jacob had not wasted any time on this first day on the road. He had walked 50 miles in a day. And remember that this is in a time when it is very, very hard to catch up to somebody. If you get a lead, chances are you're going to keep the lead. And this is also why Jacob wants to travel unseen. He chooses to lie down and sleep the night alone in the open. There was a, a town there, but he wasn't going there. And he hopes that no one saw him or knows where he is. He's taken steps to make sure that's true. If Esau can't find any clues, was Jacob here or did he go through that town or that town? Am I ahead of him? Am I behind him? Where is he? Eventually, he's going to give up the pursuit. Now, likely Jacob is 77 years old at this point. And this is the first night he has in his whole life that he's ever spent away from his family. He lies down all alone, on the ground, with his head on a rock to sleep. He's going to a strange place, to people he doesn't know, who speak a language that is a bit different from his own. Now, he had been heir to one-third of a fortune. Now, all he owns is what he's carrying. And he's got absolutely no guarantee that Esau will not catch him and kill him. And this sad situation is entirely his own fault. If he hadn't been a jerk, he wouldn't be here. And in that context, 
something very surprising happens. He goes to sleep and he has a dream. And there's a staircase going from earth to hell. And angels going up and down on it. This says to Jacob that there's a connection between the spiritual realm and the human realm. There's a connection between God and people. And it's a strong connection. It's not that Jacob sees one angel now and then going up and down the staircase. There are all kinds of them going up and down. Just numbers of them. God is involved and he's involved extensively and strongly in human affairs. Jacob had no idea this was so. Now, he knew that God had appeared to Abraham, God had appeared to Isaac, but these appearances were very rare. God had never appeared to Jacob, and we have no indication that Jacob was interested in that happening. He, he was, Jacob has really paid attention to helping and profiting Jacob. We never read that Jacob's did any praying, or that he built any altars, or that he made any sacrifices. He's totally immersed in profiting Jacob. He's focused on himself. He doesn't see any evidence that God is active in human life, and that's just the way it is. He assumes that God doesn't care. And he was wrong. God is involved in human affairs big time. Even more surprising is that God himself appears to Jacob. God is involved not only in human affairs at the national level and community level, but at the individual level. God knew where Jacob was on this night when Jacob has tried his very best to make sure that nobody knows where he is. And therefore, if God knows where he is, presumably God also knows about his situation. He knows about all the stupid, evil things that Jacob has done and that now he's paying the price. But if God comes to Jacob, then God must be interested in Jacob. God has not written Jacob off. But the most interesting and astonishing thing in this situation is what God says. Now we might expect God to do a little admonishing to Jacob, you know, a, a little lecturing. Well, well, Jacob, are you gaining an understanding about the importance of ethical conduct in human life? How does it feel to be reaping the harvest of being a jerk? Are you beginning to learn that being self-centered and thinking only of yourself is not really the best way to live? Have, have you got the idea that what goes around comes around? Do you understand that relationships matter in human life? Do you see that compassion and love are better guides to wise living than selfishness and deception? Well, Jacob, uh, I hope from now on you're, you're going to make wiser decisions. God said nothing like that at all. At all. 
he began by identifying himself. Jacob, if you have any doubts, yes, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac, the one that you've heard the family stories about. And then, having identified himself, God moves to promises. Jacob, in the same way that I promised to Abraham and I promised to Isaac the land, I'm promising it to you. You, Jacob, will inherit the land you're lying on. Now, Jacob must have been absolutely amazed. He's become the heir of the promise to the family. Now, remember, this family are nomad sheep and goat herders. They don't own any land at all. They have to live on land that farmers don't want. And woe betide them if their animals get into crops and gardens. Owning land is one of their fondest dreams because that means security. That means control. And not only does God promise ownership, he promises descendants. You're going to have all kinds of descendants, Jacob. And of course, that implies that Jacob's going to survive and he's going to get married and he's going to have kids. And you're going to have many descendants, Jacob. Numbers of them, they will spread out in all four directions. But, Jacob, I don't approve of pure self-interest. And so my promises are not for your good only. I'm going to use you to bless all peoples. Your descendants are going to become agents to pass on my good to the entire human race. God gives long-term promises, and then he moves to the short-term. Jacob, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to bring you back to this land. I'm not going to leave you until I have done what I promise to you. Now this is utterly amazing. How can God say such things to a person such as Jacob? Now let's have no doubt that God strongly disapproves of exploitation and lying and deception. Look at the prophets. They totally condemn all of those things. Some centuries after this, in fact, God was going to send Jacob's descendants into captivity for precisely these sins. And God had said to Moses, I will not hold him guiltless who uses my name for evil purposes. And that's precisely what Jacob has done. So what is God revealing about himself when he appears to Jacob? And the answer is one word. A word that we really need to keep front and center when we think about God. The word is gracious. God is gracious. He shows grace to people. God favors people without inducement from them. He comes to Jacob at probably the lowest point in Jacob's life because he cares for 
Jacob. Well, Jacob has done nothing to induce God to show up to him. He is not a pious man. We have no record that he sought God's favor on this journey. He didn't pray before he lay down to sleep for the night. He has offered absolutely nothing to God. There's no way that he deserves God's care and God's promises. But God came, still. And God doesn't ask anything of Jacob. He doesn't say to Jacob, now you need to repent of your past sins and then maybe I care about you. Or you, if, you're, if you absolutely straighten up and fly right and obey me from now on, I'm going to care about you. Or if you show that you trust me, I will care for you. Jacob is left to do life just exactly as he chooses. Now Jacob was very impressed by this dream. And he probably engaged in an act of worship when he got up the next morning. But he's still not ready to trust God. The best he can do is an if-then. He puts God on probation. If God will be with me, and if he will watch over me, and if he will give me food, and if he will give me clothing, and if I come back to this land, then... God will be my God. This was Jacob's first encounter with God. And he learned a lot. And what he learned is true for us. God is far more involved in human life than we think. And a lack of evidence of that involvement does not prove that it isn't there. And God is gracious. He wants to do good to evildoers. He has plans to bless them and use them to bless others. That's just how he is. People do not have to merit. They do not have to achieve. They do not have to buy the favor of God. God just simply is gracious. 